0: Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stolberg and Steve Magnus. And
1: welcome to another episode of the Growth Equation Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined by my friend Brad Stolberg. Brad, another lovely day.
0: How's everything going? Everything's going pretty well. Today, we are going to... What are we going to talk about today, Steve? Steve? (laughs) i love that um so we're gonna go normally
1: we pick a topic and we go deep and we dive into it and today we're gonna go broad we're gonna pick uh six different topics kind of give you the overview of our thinking on it and these are all topics that we've been spent some time recently thinking about diving into and if you're a newsletter subscriber writing about so if you want the deep understanding or a little more deep, go to the newsletter. But we're going to kind of cover those and, and kind of give you some quick hits on, um, you know, why we think they matter, why why we're interested in them, and uh, have a discussion.
0: Ah, uh, yeah. Topics. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, I I knew that this is what we're going to talk about today. So to recover... I will start by listing out the topics in the order we're going to discuss them, and then we will dive right in. So we are going to talk about expectations versus reality. We're going to talk about the limits of inspiration. We're going to talk about the balance of chance versus control versus skill versus luck. Love that topic. We're going to talk about one of Steve's favorites, deep versus superficial understanding. We are going to talk about the power of constraints and when it makes sense to actually cut back on freedom instead of open it up. And we are going to end with a topic that a lot of folks have been thinking about lately, which is how do you confront your fears wisely and with courage, not be scared or be foolish. All right. So let's dive in. So I'll, I'll tee up expectations versus
1: reality because the way I see it in my, my running track and field brain is that this is all about mismatch, right? So when there's a mismatch between expectations and reality, a lot of times bad things happen or we go the wrong way or we freak out. And the way I like to think of it is, is through a racing example, right? When you have expectations that uh, a race is going to be easy or you're going to breeze through it, what happens the moment it becomes a little bit difficult, right? You panic, you freak out. All of a sudden, everything feels much harder than it should be, right? Because there's a mismatch between your expectations and the reality you're facing. Now, this idea... Um, expands far, far wider than just racing, but I think applies to almost anything. If we look at how we're handling the current pandemic crisis, right? If you set your expectations appropriately and adjust as better data comes in, then you're ready to handle, you know, bad news if it comes. You're ready to handle, you know, take on the tasks or, or perform the tasks that prepare you Uh, for even difficult circumstances.
0: One of my favorite quotes is that the key to happiness is having really low expectations. (laughs) Um, I don't, I don't necessarily agree with that always. I think it's good to be optimistic and get, um, get excited about things when appropriate. And that's the key because sometimes things aren't all hunky dory and sometimes the future might not be great. And well, Steve said, we get shocked into more pain and suffering than necessary when our expectations are higher than reality. The, the example that, that comes to mind for me, and in, in this is going down the weeds a little bit, it's a little role reversal, Steve, I'm going to take us into the science here, is the, the, the model of allostasis, is a way for humans interaction with stress says that our response to stress is very much um is very much predicted by our expectations of that moment so if you are on the battlefield as a soldier and get shot in the leg or you are shopping at Walmart and get shot in the leg 9 times out of 10 the person at Walmart is going to feel more pain have significantly more physiological arousal than the person on the battlefield, even if it's the same exact gunshot with the same exact bullet in the same exact place of the leg. And that's because the person on the battlefield, there's an expectation that they might get shot in the leg, whereas the person at Walmart, it's so far removed from their mind. So if you apply that across the board to life, it's really, really important to set expectations that are in alignment with reality, in an alignment with your environment. And I would even say a little bit less than what you actually think the environment is. This is so counter to Western thinking, right? That says, you know, your environment is X, so your expectation should be X plus two, because we should be happy and optimistic and rah-rah all the time. I actually think a better ticket is probably to say, hey, your environment is X, your expectation should be X minus two. And hopefully, you'll just constantly be pleasantly surprised. It's always better, I think, to be surprised than shocked. It's how I look at it, right? Yeah,
1: like pleasantly surprised versus negatively surprised. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, you know, I agree. And, you know, there's, uh, well, you were talking about the, the you know, getting shot example. There's this wonderful book that was published in the 80s called The Challenge of Pain that outlines some of the preliminary research on um, on just what you described there the uh, soldiers getting shot in the in the battlefield and how they didn't need um, or didn't want morphine to the same degree that they they thought they would based on what generally happens in hospitals and other places around the world so it's it's fascinating that these concrete things that we think like, oh, pain is pain. Oh, like getting shot is getting shot are influenced by, um, the re- the world around us and our expectations of it and the context, which w- we're in. So I think, you know, that's what I think when I think of this big, um, when I think of this expectations versus reality idea is, what context are you setting up for yourself? Like,
0: where Mm -hmm. are you setting the bar? And is that appropriate? And there are some famous studies, too, that show this, um, this rule applies in social circumstances as well. So Denmark is pretty frequently towards the top of happiness ratings in terms of their citizens. And social scientists explain this year after year, because Danes tend to have pretty low expectations. So yes, Denmark has a really strong social safety net, but so do many other European countries. The difference is that the Danes have lower expectations. So again, they're happier. And in another area this applies is with money. So, famously, Dan Kahneman, who who won a Nobel Prize for his work in economics, showed that above a certain income, and back when Kahneman did this research it was $65,000 due to inflation it's probably gone up a bit but the 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 pattern or the i guess not the pattern but the principle is that above a certain income additional money is not associated with additional happiness but what is is inequality so if you make 80k and you join me and come live in Asheville you're you're just fine man because 80k is a good salary here and you can live very comfortably and most of your neighbors are probably making around 80k too If you make 80K and join me where I used to live in San Francisco, you're like literally below the poverty line and you're probably not going to be as happy. Um, So this notion of having expectations that align with reality go across the board, really, you know, beyond just the physical, beyond just the psychological, but into the social too. Yeah, exactly. You know, that's some interesting research. So let's sum this topic up
1: and jump to the other one. I think what it comes down to me is uh minimizing the mismatch right don't get shocked right in in a negative direction and then being aware of where you're setting that bar and um where you're setting that context of the environment around you if you're aware of those two things you have a little bit more c- control and and you can, you know, set appropriate goals, set appropriate expectations, and you'll be in a much better spot in terms of not only happiness and well-being, but also in terms of uh, performance parameters as well.
0: Love it. Accept reality. Don't be delusional. Don't be overly optimistic. Don't be a Debbie Downer either. Just be real. Maybe set the bar a little bit lower than you'd like and, and then be happy. If only life were that simple. Our next topic is inspiration and this is something that I wrote about in the newsletter and on the blog last week and the reason this topic came to my mind is I was being interviewed about my writing practices for um, for a magazine article and they asked me like what do I need to write well and I was thinking about, in my own writing practice, the um, it's, it's, this is so ironic because you can maybe hear listeners, my screaming two-and-a-half-year-old in the background, but in my, in, my, in my old writing practice, I would have needed to have like a perfectly quiet space at the perfect coffee shop, at the perfect kind of day you know, with big windows looking out to green trees. And that's great. And I'd still love that. But I quickly realized that if I rely on being inspired to write, I'm not going to write very often. And I think that's a big difference between being an amateur and a pro is that you don't need inspiration. And it got me thinking of other things too. Like, oh, I heard Zen Master Thich Nhat Hanh speak. So now I'm going to start a meditation practice. Um, but what happens if you don't have an hour every day to listen to Zen Master Thich Han speak? Are you still going to sit on the cushion and meditate? So it got me thinking that inspiration is like the spark, and it can be very necessary to have the spark. But in order for the fire to grow, you need to give it oxygen, and that oxygen is the consistent practice. Whereas, again, I think you know a theme of Steve and I's work is kind of bucking the trend. The trend would say you should be inspired all the time, and you should chase inspiration and um, just look at the, the self-help aisle of your bookstore. There's a lot about being inspired, but that's just lighting that little match. And you could sit there and light a million matches, but if you don't give that fire oxygen, it's going to die out every time. You
1: no, know, that's interesting. And I, I agree. Um, I, again, I'll relate it to running terms and then branch out. But it's, it, it's what I've experienced in my exercise habits, right? Is if you need inspiration all the time, you're going to fail. If you can make it like you're brushing your teeth, then you're going to succeed. Because it's like, I'm just going to get out the door because it's something that I do. Even when I don't feel that good, I might adjust it, etc., but it's it just becomes a norm and i think that's that's almost that transition point from um, not mastery but something that is like just kind of haphazard and that you go through the motions with that you need that extra kick in the butt to get out the door to something that is becomes part of your daily life and routine the other the other thing that i thought of uh, when you brought up this topic brad is this idea in teaching that we need to, like, inspire our kids to learn, right? Which is true to a degree. But if you look at the research, if you only rely on, we'll call it the uh, dead poet society form of teaching, if you've seen that movie with Robin Williams, where it's standing on the desk, lots of big speeches, it feels good, it feels like you're, you're gaining knowledge, but... Again, according to the research that I've read, it shows that like that works temporarily. But over the long haul, you actually get uh, more learning understanding by going through and doing the traditional, you know, having to go through the traditional education route of some mind numbingly boring stuff that you just have to get through. To understand and i'm not saying it all should be mind boring obviously but it's like balancing this idea of okay a little bit of inspiration helps but like just like in running most of it is mind numbingly boring but like i get through it there are not a whole lot of days where i finish a workout and i'm like that was awesome i feel energized it happens occasionally and it keeps me going but if
0: i expect that all the time it's not going to turn out well Steve, I feel like in our relationship, I'm Robin Williams in Dead Poet Society at the chalkboard and unlike Matt Damon, you just sit at your desk and fall asleep. But anyways, <laughs> um back 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 to the show. Um, no, I I agree with you. In in another another thing about this is it's not to, you know, like dog on inspiration, it's to use it more selectively. So Let's say that you get super inspired to do something, and then you start the practice, and then you groove in, and then it gets disrupted. Heck yeah! Like turn on the rocky music to get jazzed up. Read Walt Whitman to get fired up to write again, um, for sure. But you just you want to be careful that you're not reliant on those things all the time, because then, as Steve said, whether it's external or internal. Uh, when those things aren't available, you find yourself stuck or completely flat. And those things, A, aren't always available. And B, if you stack those things on top of each other, um, you'll have no time to do the actual work, right? You'll spend more than half your day getting inspired and then less than half your day actually doing the thing. And as Steve said, inspiration's easy because it feels good. Doing the work, at least getting started doing the work, is generally a lot harder, it, you know, this is one of those other cases where I think we're fooled by our
1: feelings or emotions, like huge emotional response when we get inspired, which is a good thing, right? It's positive, but we almost like over overestimate its impact and say, oh, that felt great. This is awesome. I'm ready to go. And then we like neglect or negate the actual, you know, did this actually help? Is this actually sustainable? So, if I were to sum this up. I would keep it very simple, and I would say inspiration is a good thing, and it works, but you need to save it for when you really need it.
0: Yeah, and and, and as I wrote in, uh, in the blog post last week too, tying this back, you're going to like what I'm doing here, Steve, tying this back to expectations and reality, it's really helpful to have an expectation that after you light a spark, so after you're really inspired, In order to get the fire to start and to be self-sustaining, there's a period of time that's very tedious. You need to be adding wood. You need to be meticulously paying attention. Otherwise, it it flames out and then you have to light another match. But once you get through that hump in any practice, then the fire feeds on itself. Um, So I think that's the cycle, right? It's the spark, the inspiration, the kind of period of, ooh, this is a lot harder than I thought this is a little bit even tedious till you wake up one day and then it's like, oh my gosh, this is great. I no longer need any motivation to get out the door and run or I feel wonderful grooving into work because this is just what I do. Love it.
1: I right. I, I love the connections, man. We're getting good at this, this spicing or splicing it together here. Um, <laughs> spice and spice <laughs> there you go i mean we are getting a little more uh uh we'll call it less professional more uh
0: back and forth banter here so we'll see if we'll see if this works that's the on the story. note of spice um for the parents out there i my favorite food is thai noodles and my wife caitlin just loves to feed my kid like the most bland stuff ever and <laughs> A couple nights ago I gave him some spicy Thai noodles and Ken's like, Oh, he's never gonna like it. Like, don't give him that. Guess what Theo's new favorite food is, everyone? Spicy Thai noodles. Oh man. I know there I, I was in heaven, man. We were eating spicy Thai noodles watching basketball together. It was it was peak talk yeah. about exceeding my expectations.
1: That's you know, I can see that. That is uh right on. So let's let's tie that into something else. You know, Brad, you had a lot of courage. Just kidding. We won't go there yet. Uh, Let's go into chance versus control versus skill. Um, Our next topic,
0: Brad, will you frame that for us? I will frame that for us. Right after Steve says we're getting pro, I go off on a rant about Thai noodles and Steve messes up the order. Um, So chance versus skill versus luck versus control. I started thinking about this after reading our friend Maria Konnikova's book "The Biggest Bluff," which was about her experience as a writer who basically took what was supposed to be a one-year sabbatical from writing and turned into a multi-year journey into becoming a professional poker player and performing really well at some big tournaments. And the 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 premise of her book is that. Poker is a wonderful microcosm for life in that it teaches you that, yes, skill does matter. Yes, pattern recognition does matter. And yet, there's a lot of luck and chance too. And she describes this hand where I think she had pocket aces, which is the best hand you could possibly have in poker. And she gets beat by someone who had... You know, a pair of threes, and there was a three on the board, or something like that. So they had three threes, and um, she was super like overwhelmed by that. And she went to her coach, Eric Seidel, who's a poker master. And Eric said, "Have a short memory. Bad beats are a bad mental habit. Get it out of your head. You should play that hand the same way every single time." And I think that Maria's. You know, she's this is her book. She's she's the pro, both not only writing about this, but as the poker player. And I really agree with her that it really is a good model for life. And I don't play too much poker, I haven't played poker in 15 years. I played back way back in the day in high school. Um, but I just love that, that, that acceptance of luck versus skill and really just seeing it in real time. Yeah. You know, um, I think, I
1: like that, that we're getting these – it's almost like you're getting games and sports applied to the rest of your life. And I think that you can go too far in that, but I love seeing how simple activities can get translated into life lessons. You know, Lord knows that I do that way too often on this podcast, so it's good we're talking about poker instead of running. But, you know, on this chance versus control versus skill idea – I think what really strikes me is how often pushers tend to leave out that chance idea. Right? We tend to think that we have control to a large degree over whether we win or lose, of uh, whether we do well or or not, and we take the we celebrate the wins and we take the hard times really hard. If you're a pusher, and I think like reading M- Maria Konnikova's book here really kind of made me step back and ask okay like when are the times when i'm able to just brush it off and be like you know what that was up to chance like that was a bad beat and when am i maybe doing that when i could have learned or taken something away so it's really like developing this awareness um to be able to dissect like how much of the result was in your control and is there something you should take away from it, or should you just let it go, forget about it, and move on?
0: Yep. In 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 that and here's like the thing. I was emailing with Maria after I read the book. That throughout the book, I and and she didn't she's clever. She didn't really tell me if she intended this or not, so she just let me wrestle with it. I kept coming back to the title which is called The Biggest Bluff, and I couldn't help but think is the whole game just the biggest bluff? Like, is it really just more luck than skill? And is the actual bluff that we think that skill and control is 80% of the game when it's actually only 3% of the game? And I don't have an answer to that question. It probably depends on the day that you ask me, right? Some days I'd say, no, we do have lots of control and skill does matter. And other days I'd say it's a lot more luck. And I don't think that anyone necessarily has that answer. You could argue that statisticians do what they can to get us to that answer. But man, I just love that title. And and you can't help but think, are these big, bold moves that you make that you think are controlling, are those actually just bluffs? And the whims of chance could totally knock them away. But then you spend time on that end of the spectrum thinking with that mindset, and you quickly realize that actually, if you have that mindset, you're just going to sit on a couch all day and do nothing. And clearly your actions do matter. So I just love wrestling with that tension of control versus um, ambiguity or I guess control versus what's the word I'm looking for, like spontaneous uh, environmental changes and then skill versus luck. Man, we could have a whole deep dive on like free will
1: here if we wanted to, but since this, save that for Sam Harris's podcast. Yeah, we'll, we'll save that over there. But that's that's exactly what I'm thinking here. Is like, it's the same idea of like, how much impact do we we actually have, right? How much control over what we're doing do we do we actually have? And you know, is it a bad thing to kind of let that go and? you know it's almost like at either extremes we're in a bad spot right yes yes if we if we sit there and be like oh whatever life is going to work out it's going to happen like we do we're probably going to end up in a bad spot but if on the other end we sit there and be like life is only what we make it it is all up to us i can change the like i i how my life ends up is entirely up to me well we're setting
0: ourselves up for failure and setting society up for failure too, because that's not true. Yeah. It's a dance, you know, that's maybe how to think of it. Like you're dancing with your environment and you don't really know what your environment's going to do, but you can certainly swing it in certain ways. And maybe sometimes it'll follow. Maybe sometimes it won't. And you got to pay close attention to when it's dancing without you. And when you, when you're in more control, um, I love it. I think that you nailed it. I'll, I'll end this on one more thing because the free will thing's fascinating. I forgot who, who said this, but a philosopher and neuroscientist, not Sam Harris, said that it doesn't really matter if we have free will or not. We should live as if we do.
1: Makes sense. Yeah. So, so let's transition to the next one, which is deep versus superficial knowledge and understanding. And I think that connects to here as well because it shows how our perceptions and our knowledge, right? Or our perceptions change as our knowledge and understanding does. What does that mean? Well, the way you see your writing, Brad, now is probably very much different than the way you saw it five, six years ago when you were a novice, right? And that applies to everything from writing to sports to anything we do. But one of my favorite examples is a study, again, associated with running. Shoot me, I do this too much. But I love this study because it, they, were, they took university students, okay, took them to Hill, And asked them how steep this hill was. And they gave them a variety of ways to measure or to show, to demonstrate, to just guess, etc. And these researchers found that there was one group who actually was pretty good at estimating the the steepness of the hill. Most people way overestimated. They said, oh, you know, that is a 30% grade when it actually was 10%, for example. Well, those people turned out to be the cross country runners, right? Now why in the world would they be pretty accurate at 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 you know judging the the steepness of the hill? Well, one could say, okay, they run up and down hills, but maybe they're not. Well, the researchers had an idea and they said, well, maybe it's you it's related to capabilities. So they had them then judge the hill, again, a group of fit runners and others when they were fresh versus after a a five, six, seven mile run when they're tired. And guess what? When they were fatigued, they became like the regular college people and way overestimated the steepness of the hill. And this study and then a bunch to follow kind of got to the idea that our capabilities, right, shape the world that we see. And that
0: to me is just, it's just fascinating to think about. Fish and water is what comes to mind for me so you're you're a fish in water all you know is the water that's around you and to a fish you ask the fish about New York City thinking like, well, what's New York City? like all I know is water, but once you get out of water, then suddenly you have this whole expansive view of what's in the world, what's possible, how the world works, and all of us are fish in respective waters for different areas of our life. So if I try to go into a theoretical physics lab, I am a fish coming out of water into the world without a clue what's going on. Um, When I first started anything, when I first started writing, I didn't really know what was going on. And as you gain more experience out of your, your respective water into whatever world you're diving into, the more of it you can see. Uh, another example of this, Steve, I know it's something that you wrote about, I don't know, two or three years ago. It was a, a pretty popular growth EQ blog post was Tony Romo and how he just totally crushed commentating on football. And everyone's like, what's the secret to Tony Romo being the best NFL commentator ever? And you were like, it's simple. He's one of the only NFL commentators that really knew and studied the game that hadn't been concussed multiple times. <laughs>
1: I love that uh, add on at the end. But it's true. You know, that is a wonderful. I've forgotten about that plug, that post.
0: But well, I it is true. Because when you wrote that post, I looked at and I'm not going to name names, but I looked at other NFL commentators who are former players that are not nearly as good doing play by play. And what they all have in common is multiple concussions. Interesting. So it's interesting. But yeah, Tony Rome was great. Yeah, no, but it's, it's you know, that is a wonderful
1: real live example of someone who sees the game differently because, because he had the skill and expertise and studied it to such a degree that, well, you know, you and I might see, you know, um, it, it almost like chaos and only see the big things like, oh, the wide receiver is doing this. Romo sees subtle differences, which to him are huge. Right? He yeah. sees the linemen like moving their foot in a in a certain way, and says, "Up, that means that now this player over here is going to do this, and they're going to run this play instead." Right? Yeah. Well, most of us look at that and we're like, "I don't know what you're talking about. Like, it looks like the same formation." Because, yeah. but because of his knowledge and his understanding, like he sees the world differently, and I think okay, what does that matter? Why does this tie into what we're talking about now? I think, A, it's it's an acknowledgement that as you grow in your field, like your perception and views of what you're doing will change, and that's a good thing. So you should always strive for learning and growth. And then B, I think it's to respect expertise to a degree because, you know, I'll give another pandemic example. Um The nuance in the data and the understanding of something that is novel for most of us is, you know, we're only going to pick out the easy to pick things, right? Someone who's used to living in this data world is going to be able to see things that we don't. And again, to tie it back to, you know, another study um, that I think is pertinent here is when they looked at novice rock climbers versus experts and they tracked their vision and what they're looking for. Like, novices literally pick out and their vision goes to, to the, like, easiest holds, the easiest places to put their, uh, you know, put their hands and climb up the uh, rock face. The experts see it completely differently. They're not looking for the holds, but they're looking for subtle deviations that give them different route possibilities. And it's just fascinating, but it's a great <laughs> example of, again... The further down we go in expertise, the, the more our perception changes uh, towards what we're doing.
0: Uh, let me give a quick writing example, and then we'll move on. So this reminds me of um, the difference in phases of writing, at least that's what I've come to call it. And you can have writing that is ineffective, you can have writing that is effective, and you can have writing that's elegant. So ineffective writing is you have no idea what the person's trying to say. Effective writing is you read it and you understand what the person's trying to say, but you didn't enjoy reading it. And elegant writing is you read it, you understand what the person's trying to say, and you enjoyed the actual process of reading it. And such a trap for writers is to try to write elegantly before they can even write effectively so they use all these big words and long compound sentences and fancy punctuation and you don't have a freaking clue what they're saying because they're trying to have deep understanding but they really only have superficial understanding and I think you know if I was teaching writing I would I would coach people through that through those phases and it can take a long time to move from effective to elegant and you can't always be elegant a lot of stuff I don't write is elegant. I My goal is always, how can I be effective first? And then is there an opportunity to make this elegant? Um, so it's just another example of deep versus superficial understanding that's off the playing field and in our brains. Love it. All right. What do we have next uh, in our kind of topic, topic of the day list? Constraints. Yeah. <laughs> I like constraints what's not well, that, to like about constraints that could be taken
1: many many different ways but for our g-rated podcast um
0: oh wait dude what are you talking about
1: <laughs> oh man steve you know it's just one of those days we're going all over the place um, constraints i love constraints because i think of them in terms of workouts
0: Okay, workouts with your wife Hillary?
1: No, gosh, why do you go there? That is <laughs> That's where step, you went, man. <laughs> that is a step far. I didn't blatantly say that. All I right. meant workouts, wor- wor- workouts, workouts, track workouts. Okay, you change the constraints, right? When you change the constraints, like you – instead of dictating exactly what you're doing, you apply constraints to the athlete and let them figure it out. You, you give them, them some role in the choice. So, what does that mean? I'm going to go into the running weed, weeds briefly, very briefly.
0: Okay? I'll take us out. Don't worry. Um,
1: if I tell someone go run uh, four miles at six-minute pace, and that's a hard tempo – kind of effort for you, okay? But tell some what? Heart attack. Yeah, for you heart attack. Um, <laughs> but okay, that's one way to you know to give prescribe a workout, right? But there's very little control for the athlete. They're like I have to run 4 miles and I have to try, try to do it at 6 minute pace, right? Another way is to say, "Hey, I want you to get 4 miles total worth of work." at around this, this pace or effort, but how you split it up is entirely up to you, right? You can go mile, mile, mile with a break in between. You can try and go two miles and take a short break. How You could take a long break. I don't care. You could try and go, you know, push all the way through, but these are your constraints and these are the parameters. Now it's up to you to figure it out, Right. And I think that gives some sort of responsibility and B, it teaches them to learn to listen to their body so that, you know, maybe for this day, four miles was too much at the time. So they can say, you know what, I'm through two and a half miles. I'm not feeling great. I still want to get the workout in like, but within these parameters, I'm going to take a break and then break it down into something that I can handle in terms of repeats. That's what I mean in terms of constraints and work.
0: So, you take that out of track, and I think about constraints very similarly as if the world is your oyster for whatever it is that you're doing, and you give yourself total freedom, it can be very overwhelming to figure out what to do. And you think that it's more creative and more creativity inducing when you have total freedom, but all kinds of research shows that isn't true because you just get paralyzed by choice. So, constraints is about narrowing down the world so that you have fewer opportunities and fewer places to go. But because of that, you have more freedom to make a good decision and then to go in that route. Um, So an example of this in the creative process could be if you're really struggling to write and you're suffering from writer's block, it can be super helpful to say, that my constraint is I'm only going to give myself 45 minutes to write today, and I'm going to force myself to write 500 words in those 45 minutes. Now, will those 500 words be poetry? Probably not. Will you keep even one sentence from those 500 words in your final draft? Maybe, maybe not. But what it will do is it will mix things up, because it will get you going. And even if you erase everything, it'll break that inertia. Whereas if you were to say, I'm stuck, but I'm going to give myself all afternoon to write, and it doesn't matter how many words I write, well, you could just sit there trying to have perfection. So a big part of constraints in this manner or this regard is getting rid of the anxiety that comes with endless choices and endless opportunities in narrowing things down in a way that is conducive to actually getting some kind of good productive action.
1: It is easier to choose what you want to eat off a menu at one restaurant than having uh dozens of menus available and having to pick right that's that's what, that's what we 're trying to get after here is that constraints can be a really good thing when you're trying to um, you know, get something done or be productive when you're in one of those moments where uh, maybe your inspiration to tie that back or your motivation at that point is a little uh, you know, uh, limited or waning. So, that's, that's how I like to use constraints as well is almost using them to help me get through something to narrow my choices down when I'm struggling or with the people I work with to give back control um, because often in either a coaching or teaching world, the control lies in the coach and teacher. So I think sometimes to give parameters um, and then give that control back helps ingrain processes um, and ingrain, you know, learning better than, you know, just dictating and following.
0: Love it. All right, last principle of the day—one that I need to muster quite a bit of every single time I pull up my microphone to record a Growth EQ podcast with Steve—is courage. Man, I didn't know it took so much to uh,
1: get on the on the pod with me,
0: Steve. Man, let's go into rodent science. <laughs> You know, this is my favorite stuff.
1: Let's science nerd out a little bit. So, this came, you know, this courage topic I think is interesting uh, always, but I was reading a study for a related uh,
0: project. Steve Steve was locked into his constraints. At home, not on the track, reading about rats. That's yes. what Steve does in his free time, everyone. That is, I love reading
1: about rats. Okay. Um, and, but this was an interesting study by Soleil et al. in 2019, I believe. Um, what they found is they said, you know what? When we scare the crap out of rats by making them think that a predator is coming, right? They tend to either freeze or flee. Okay right? Fight or flight, kind of similar, right? Freeze or flee. But what what they noticed is that some rats would run away a little bit, and then they would start shaking and rattling their tail as if, wait a minute, I'm going to try and take you on. And they, they interpreted that as courage. So then they dove deep and said, okay, what in the world makes these rats decide to
0: display courage and, like, rattle their tail and say, come at me, bro, essentially. And they didn't listen to Joe Rogan because rats don't listen to Joe Rogan, so it can't be that. <laughs> that's true.
1: That is true. Maybe they didn't. Maybe they had Joe Rogan on in bo- in uh, the background, and that's what happened. But what they did is they narrowed in on this one area of the brain, okay, without getting too complicated here, that essentially um, receives input on our motivation, our emotion, and our body responses, like how we're doing. Okay. And it connects to the amygdala, which is the threat response, and the prefrontal cortex, which is kind of control. And what they found is when they stimulated this area and the connection to the amygdala, the rats scare- scurried away. They were scared. When they stimulated this area and the connection to the prefrontal cortex, The rats all of a sudden started, you know, wagging their tail, saying, you know what? Come at me. I'm not scared. Let's take things on. And not only that, they enjoyed the feeling of being courageous and would stay in that kind of area to get stimulated more so, get their brain area stimulated. And it just struck me as like, oh, man, like this is so fascinating science, but it's also highly applicable here is that... To obtain courage, what do we have to do translating that science into the real world? We have to dampen down our amygdala a little bit, which means dampen down our fear response and get out of our own way so that we can act, right? Shake that tail. There are things that we can do, whether that's, you know, that attack or uh, activate these brain areas that aren't, you know, hey, I'm going to put on a facade. I'm going to, you know, make it seem like I'm much tougher than reality, and instead it's things like meditation and acceptance and things like what we talk about in peak performance, developing a calm conversation where you can create space to act. If you do those things, you're putting yourself in position to have courage.
0: For sure. The calm conversation is um, the, the term that we wrote about in peak performance that I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Steve, the genesis of that was in your coaching way back in the day, and it reminds me of um, what a lot of really good meditation teachers talk about just the power of a pause. So, in daily life, when you feel a stress response coming on, and generally you can feel this in your body, your teeth might clench, your shoulders might get tight, um, you might kind of scrunch your eyes. If you can use that as a cue to just pause and maybe take a breath works for you, maybe count to five, but just something to give yourself a little bit of space to decide what makes the most sense in terms of a response, instead of just reacting, either by fighting or fleeing, then your response is generally somewhere in between. Um, It's deliberate, it's intentional, and it gives you the best chance of navigating that situation wisely. Summed up well.
1: I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you one more science nerd study because I love this. Because not only do I read about rats and mice in my free time, but also snakes.
0: Geez, Steve chains himself to his bed and then reads about snakes. That exciting, is- exciting stuff happening in Houston. That is, you know, we're uh,
1: at the recording of this podcast. We have a hurricane on our way. Thankfully, it's going to just miss us, so we won't get the brunt, I think. But, you know, that's what you got to do. So, I'm I'm getting courage <laughs> to face, you know, the hurricane, you know, probably the 10th hurricane of my life I've faced, and get over my fear by reading about snakes and mice. So, shoot me, Brad. But anyways, so this one actually involves humans. In this study, they took humans, people... Who were scared of snakes and what did they do this do the research scientists who are a little diabolical they had a conveyor belt with a snake attached to it and the, and the conveyor belt would get closer to the humans the people as they were sitting in an fmri machine and cruelly they told the people get the snake as close as you can and we'll scan your brain and what they found is that some people said, no way, they hit the reverse button, sent that snake across the room. And other people who, again, were deeply scared of snakes, kept, kept going ahead, had the courage to fight forward, move that snake till it was almost right next to their head. And what they found in the brain was the same thing that they found in the rats, is that two things, they were able to dampen down that fear response and also... Pretty interestingly enough, which is why I bring it down, the way that they were able to do that was to reduce what we called um, or reduce what we call the uh, autonomic arousal. So the almost nervous system excitement they were able to bring it down to a level so that they could overcome it and display courage, which is exactly what you're talking about, Brad, when you're talking about, taking a pause allows mm-hmm. you to over to make sure that that arousal doesn't get just get skyrocketed into you know the nether regions wherever it goes so that you can't deal with it taking that pause allows you to get things back under control you know reduce that fear enough so that you have the opportunity
0: to act love it love it love it i think that is a good spot to end Courage and end this week's episode of the Growth Equation podcast. As a reminder, uh, we've written about and explored many of these topics in our newsletter, in our blog. So if you're interested in learning more, be sure to check that out at www.thegrowtheq.com. We'll also put those posts in the show notes. And be sure to tune in next week. We are scheduled to have a very special guest return to the podcast to talk about all things related to change in life transitions. She is someone that knows this well. She's a big favorite of um, us. And based on download numbers of you all, by far our most popular episode was the one and only Shalane Flanagan, who will be joining us again next week. So, until then, um, am I missing anything, Steve? Or are you going to go constrain yourself to your bed with snakes while a hurricane rolls through?
1: <laughs> you know, that's how we get through hurricanes down here in Texas. So, um, Man, you guys thought Florida was weird. Visit Texas. That's right. Visit Texas. The best state by far in our own minds. So, that's what I'm going with, but all all reality or all things considered by the time you listen to the hurricane will be through and hopefully the damage is minimal and that people you know make it through okay because these things are not fun so until next time thank you for listening we appreciate you guys listening share if you if you can and don't forget to rate and review the
0: podcast wherever you listen to it Thanks for listening to the Growth Equation Podcast. Learn more about our work and find show notes at our website, www.thegrowtheq.com. Follow us on Twitter, at B. Stahlberg and at Steve Magnus. And if you like what you listen to, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, as this goes a long way in helping it reach others.